Today on the Almond Journey podcast. How do you get rid of inventory? Oh, you got to lower prices in a way to get out from under it. But that's not necessarily what's keeping us from marketing this crop. What's keeping us is this global logistical constraint. We dive deeper into these global logistical constraints with Darren Rigg of the Minturn Nut Company. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I'm traveling up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their communities, and advance this almond industry. Today, we travel down 99 to Minturn Nut Company, located in La Grande, California, just north of Chowchilla. We're sitting down with field buyer and sales rep Darren Rigg, who's also on the Almond Board of California Board of Directors. Darren talks about the current logistics, transportation, and shipping challenges that are facing the industry while trying to execute on the global demand for almonds. Darren grew up in Escalon and started his career in 2008 after graduating from Chico State. He joined Minturn Nut in 2017, where he manages sales and procurement of almonds, including managing call pools, buyer and seller accounts, and developing new business. To kick things off, though, I asked Darren if he'd start off with just giving us a little bit of background about Minturn Nut Company. Yeah, so it was started in the late 90s by a group of growers in this area. It's essentially six farming families. They're pretty prominent through the Madera, Merced, Chowchilla, the Grand area. This area where the facility's at is actually called Minturn. It's the Grand, but the area they call it Minturn. So they started as an independent facility then, and they grew from their initial volume to now. We've got hundreds of outside growers. The first original owners only represent 12% of our volume. So we predominantly rely on our outside grower partners to make sure we see this thing through. And how many people on your team that deals with all this kind of procurement, logistics, et cetera? We've got two full-time field reps, but really we probably have more like five in total. Some of us that have dual roles. And then, you know, we have a full-fledged shipping department, which I know we're going to talk about later, but that's a huge part of our organization. Collectively, that's about four individuals. Michelle Martinez is our head shipping manager, and she's absolutely fantastic. She started in the industry around 2006, 2007, so she has a world of experience, started from the ground up. And then, you know, we have the full-on operations manager, food safety management, and that from her, Reagan, there's a whole team of individuals. Collectively, we have like 160 employees. We only are raw manufactured processing. We don't do any ready-to-eat. So that does help us a little bit. Yeah. And typically then, is it going from you straight to export or is it going on to further processing before it's exported typically? We're about 70% export and we're going straight to the export processing market and user market. Domestically, whoever buys from us, they're going to do third-party processing and manufacturing themselves. So we're just a raw bulk supplier. Very cool. And is is this similar to what you were doing up in Chico, or is this a totally different uh, Very role? similar company, probably structured similarly as well. The difference is, and it might have changed since now, is call pool and seasonal pool. Uh, we operate both here at Minter Nut. Some handlers don't. They just have a seasonal pool, so we do a little bit of both. Um, but the call pool has become increasingly important and popular in our industry over the course of the last 15 years. Huh. And then, so your job, talk us through kind of your overall responsibilities, but then also what that looks like on a day-to-day basis for you. 
my responsibility is all a big part of it is being that conduit to the grower and having that market discovery. I have the access to the market, the European markets, the, the Middle East. Our largest export market is India. So daily I'm communicating with our partners in India that we've developed good relationships over the years because we've been there for so long. And understanding the nuances and the intricacies in every market and position Mintern and also our growers best into those markets so we can try to have success anyway. It kind of depends on the day. If we're actively trying to sell into the marketplace aggressively, my job would be find as much information as I can to sell the product that best suits the needs of the facility. And what I mean by that is try to maximize what we produce into what we sell. So we don't want to produce something that's going to take us too much time. We don't want to produce something that we don't have the proper input. So it's really working with the production team, working with our input material and our end users so we can try to get as close to possible, you know, win, win, win across the board. And what I mean by that specifically in layman's terms is to not sell something we don't have and then take us a lot of time to make that material. The grades, the standards, the varieties, to make sure then marry those as close as possible to minimize the amount of hands in it, the amount of time, and also increase the chance that our customer is going to be satisfied with what they received. Right. And then, you know, as that conduit to the growers, I imagine you're calling, especially those that have, you know, almonds in the call pool situation to see if they're interested in kind of pulling the trigger. Is that right? That's right. Give them updates, you know, weekly, daily, it just depends on who the grower is and how much they want to spend communicating into the marketplace. And if that's what they want to do, then they rely on me to give them the most up-to-date, timely, and honest information I can give them. And they might use their field rep, but then the field rep's calling me all the time on behalf of the grower. So that's kind of what I mainly do. That's most of my time, but I'm also involved in our production team and in the plant as well. Well, let's talk more about logistics here. You know, we've been hearing about supply chain issues ever since the pandemic hit, but it's been probably right about two years now since that was the case. It seems like, if anything, it's gotten worse here lately. Can you maybe set the scene for us about the challenges that are out there and what might be sort of driving this? Yeah, I, I feel like it's a death by a thousand cuts. There's not any one thing that's driving it. It's collectively everything is just completely knocking the wind out of our cells. And anytime we feel like we start getting momentum, something occurs where it just takes us right back down to square one. And, you know, it started off with COVID. Certain ports shut down. Steamship lines actually started decommissioning vessels because they thought the demand wouldn't be there. And then all of a sudden, everybody's ordering online. Everybody has disposable income because our government's infused capital into the markets to keep our economies alive. So it increased our trade imbalance. At the same time, some of our export partners, their markets were you know, retracting and they weren't doing as much shipping. So that imbalance just kind of got worse and worse and worse. And uh, we can't catch up. We still can't catch up. So as a steamship line, they're going to make more money exporting to the United States than the other way around. In turn, our imports are more reliable than our exports. Yeah, I know that makes sense. And I mean, what does that mean for the almond market? How does that affect price first and foremost? And then how do you kind of respond to it in your situation? Thankfully, you know, scarcity also builds demand, right? So if our customers can't get almonds into their market, they're that much more desperate to get those almonds. So there's a part of that that can be beneficial. Now, where it really hurts us is once you lose stomach space, you can't gain it back. So if a retailer in Germany for the holidays 
needed 100 loads but only receives 80 because of the shipping constraints. Well, there's 20 loads there that now are not being able to go into the marketplace that otherwise could be consumed. And currently we have, you could argue record low prices if you adjust them for inflation, okay? Especially in the last 15 years. So the demand should be a lot bigger because the pricing is so affordable and there's a lot of value at these price points for the global consumer base for almonds. But if you can't buy it, what are you gonna do, right? You're gonna buy something else. You can't go back and then buy more. You just lose. So we lose consumption when we can't ship efficiently, especially in markets that don't plan ahead into the developing markets, your India's, your Middle East, they plan ahead to a certain extent, but they don't have the warehousing capabilities that say a Western Europe would have. They still do a lot of business in the bizarre market style, not as much on the retail side. Well, retailers are always six months, a year ahead. Well, if you're just doing hand to mouth, if it's not there, it's not there, right? They've been used to just kind of getting just-in-time inventory for years. Exactly right. Just-in-time. Yep. And then when you don't have that, it's a major disruption. So then are you that excited to invest in imports then? Or, you know, California almonds, if they're not a reliability and when you receive them, it's going to discourage the investment in that product category. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, if you lose that share of the stomach, it could be gone forever if they just find a substitute and stick with it. Is that also true for kind of the food manufacturers, you know, as far as an ingredient? Are they saying, look, I have trouble getting California almonds, so I'm going to look at a different ingredient for my formulation going forward? Yeah, but even then, I think that's short lived. Almonds are highly desirable. We're sexy product. People want almonds in their product. They're just frustrated all hell that they can't get it. So if there is missed stomach space, I think it's temporary. If we solve these problems, they come back, especially at these price points. I have 100% confidence in our product and the ability of California to market this crop. Now, it might not always be the most attractive price points, but at these prices especially, I believe that there's a home for every nut that we process in this state. I don't think it's a loser. Just for an example, if you're a customer and, oh, I bought hazelnuts this time because they didn't have almonds. I don't think we created a fundamental shift in that person's buying pattern. I really don't. As soon as almonds are back, I'm going to the almonds, especially at these prices. It's a no-brainer. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. It's just a matter of getting the product to the customer. That's right. And to your knowledge, is it any worse in California than it is in other parts of the world? You know, we only operate and have opinions for what's in our backyard. I don't know 100% what's happening, say in Portugal or Australia, but what I do know communicating with our partners is they're just as frustrated as we are, no matter where they're getting material. So if you're importing Turkish hazelnuts, they're having difficulties. If you're trying to export your Chilean walnuts, you're having problems because the global supply chain is fully interconnected. And so one gap or lag here is gonna affect it over here downstream. So maybe that's operating fine in South America right now, but then maybe a few months from now, they're in the predicament we're in. It seems like we're all taking turns sharing the pain. Some of these places, like uh, one of my customers in Spain was telling me, it used to take two days customs clearance on a, on a load of almonds, say. Two weeks now. That's 12 days extra that that container is being tied up in a shipment yard, taking up space, taking a container. You know, all that collectively you throw that all in together, you know, it's not just one problem. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And also, after I asked that question, I thought about what you said earlier about the demand for freight coming this way being so great that they just want to take empties back. That's kind of frustrating. I mean, has that gotten any better or is that still the case? Like I said, it seems like it'll get better. You have a, a very positive, weak, positive momentum, and then it falls on its face. You know, and we're not in the the room with the politicians. We don't know for sure what they're trying to do to address this. But part of it is I think it's above all of us to a certain extent. I don't know 100% what we can do, but this trade imbalance is is brutal. And the steamship lines have not built out their infrastructure to handle the amount of commerce that has been taking place either. Right. So we don't have enough, you know, steamship capacity, obviously, but but also it sounds like we don't have enough storage capacity, at least not at these destinations. Yeah, absolutely. So if we get equipment called and we want to make sure we ship it out to the Port of Oakland, because that's where our service contract is. Hey, we got the equipment. Great. All right. Ship it out there. But then the vessel gets rolled. I need to have a place to store that as it waits for the next vessel, say. Right. Well, a lot of those warehousing space in those yards, storage yards are full. We don't have the capacity. You know, and anytime something's sitting there, not on a vessel, that's taking up equipment. You know, you don't want to have wasted time and wasted space and using up equipment. You want stuff to be going. Right. And what about administrative costs or, you know, how does this kind of affect that? Well, we have noticed that, and I think there was a report recently sent out from the AgTC. They did an Ag Exporter Carrier Service Impact Survey. So this was across all ag commodities that rely on export. And so basically, we've seen our shipping costs double, you know, on average. Double to get to the port, double for inland domestic, double to export. So that burden of that cost, you know, it's going downstream to the consumer, but it's not to the benefit of the grower. And that's what's frustrating. You know, we're in a deflationary commodity in an inflationary times. And so it can be frustrating. And so what does this look like logistically? You know, I know we're still months away here, but headed into another harvest, we have to clear up some of this space to make room for the next crop. Um, Is that something that's already on your mind? And kind of how do you approach that? It's been on our mind for a year. It's difficult to figure out the proper path forward on how to to manage that, right? Because how do you get rid of inventory? Oh, you got to lower prices in a way, in an idea, right? To get out from under it. But that's not necessarily what's keeping us from marketing this crop. What's keeping us is this global logistical constraint. So then is that smart doing that? Probably not. The goal is to try your best to manage it, being strategic about yourselves. If you know one region, you seem to have a higher success rate in getting bookings, you know, you go there. And then if that goes away, then you have to be willing to be pivot, be quick, and quickly react when shipping changes. That's only going to get you so far because we're all doing the same thing. But that's all you can do. I don't know what else to do. You can't flood the domestic market with, you know, that's not healthy. And that's not even necessarily reliable. We're a three billion pound juggernaut. I mean, domestic markets, 800 million pounds or so. So we're at their mercy. Yeah. And what about domestic logistics? I'm talking about just getting it to the port. I mean, is that a challenge as well? Oh, absolutely. We're running out of equipment. You know, so if you have your trucker, but you can't get equipment, then all of a sudden they can't come to your plant to pick up almonds. That's a huge problem. I mean, in some cases, even hard to get domestic truckers to take your product to a warehouse in El Paso. Across the economy and across the supply chain, there is a lack of labor, period. 
especially skilled labor and qualified truckers. And so they're going to go wherever they can make the most money, and rightfully so. We don't have enough right now. Yeah, I think everybody's facing that. You know, one question I have is maybe you can give us a sense of, you know, where we're at in the crop marketing year as far as, you know, pounds that still need to move relative to what's normal. You know, how many pounds need to move between now and harvest versus a normal year? Or if there is such a thing as a normal year anymore? Uh, You know, some of that is kind of subjective. And it's also your upcoming crop expectations could change the desirability of what that carryout number looks like for any one handler. So if you believe that, say, a drought is going to have major ramifications to our overall supply, thus creating a firming market, you might think, all right, I need to carry more of my crop in to satisfy my buyers because we're going to have a potential shortage of almonds. Now, if we believe that we're going to have a a rather decent-sized crop, then what's the incentive of carrying product into the new year? It's going to be probably pretty minimal, right? Because there's a cost of carrying goods as well. So you have to weigh those things out. Is the market going to increase enough to as where it justifies the increased cost of holding those goods? Or is it going to stay flat to of which that's not worthy of doing that? You also need to create cash flow, right? We do come into storage needs and you've got to work the material. So anyway, long story short, it can change depending on who you are, what your facility looks like, and what your belief system as to what's going to happen six months from now. But overall, right now, if you were to look at shipment reports, we have a record level of supply. So chances are we want to try to get through as much of that as reasonably possible. So we put ourselves into a good position next year in case we do run into supply constraints because of the drought. That way we can more actively take advantage of that and see the firming in the price. As long as we carry this huge supply burden, then it's hard to take advantage of those disruptions. Right. I'm going to ask you the the impossible question to answer, but but uh, I would not be doing my job if I didn't, which is when can we expect all this to get better? You're asking the wrong guy. I'm wrong 50% of the time, and I'm sure I'm going to be wrong on this one. But if you talk to freight forwarders, and if you read any kind of the, the global logistical publications, it's not going to be until 2023. Because they've just started green lighting the building of new steamship vessels, a lot of the, you know, the Zims and the Hamburg Sids and the large, the global steamship lines. Well, that takes time. Those are major projects. Building more containers, ordering more containers, all that stuff. It kind of got like parked during COVID where these projects weren't being done. And then all of a sudden our economies kept humming. And then by the time they decided that we're going to fund these projects, it was too late. So now we're still in this backlog of adjusting that infrastructure to scale. So it's going to take time. And we're also going to need to start seeing a decrease in the amount of imports that countries like America and Western Europe are buying from other countries to get that more balanced. These steamship lines don't want to send back empties, really. But they also don't want to wait at that port forever to fill up that vessel. So if we export more, it will incentivize those steamship lines to do a backhaul of American products, right? They don't want to go with one-fourth of the vessel full, and they don't want to spend three weeks sitting in the port to wait for it to get filled up with American-made products or Canadian-made products, whatever the imbalance is up. So if we can export more, that will also help increase our chances of getting on, you know, having more than just ag products. 
And for that problem of these steamships having to wait at the port to get loaded when they're, you know, they could be making way more if they were bringing in imports. Where's that bottleneck? Because it sounds like someone like yourself, you're ready to go. If they say you've got space, you've got to go and you're going to make it happen. And there's, you know, you said the storage is kind of filled up there. So where's the bottleneck? Is it in the port logistics itself? You know, that's what a lot of people say, that there may be things we can do here stateside to increase our capacities at the port. I kind of tend to think it's bigger than that because we're getting vessels also stuck in transshipment ports overseas as well. So it's kind of like these little bottlenecks everywhere create a bigger problem. So it's really hard to pinpoint, you know, and we had record shipments last year, month after month after month after month. So something changed between then. And, uh, you know, I tried to explain some of the things that we think they are, but it would definitely help if we grow the infrastructure here. And it would also help if we shipped out a lot more product other than just almonds, walnuts, pistachios and some dried fruit. And I don't know, some of the the wheats and stuff from the, the Midwest. We need more manufactured goods going as well. We have a big trade imbalance and that hurts our ability as well. That'd be so the steamships could fill up with 100% capacity and actually make it worth their while, you know, to wait around to get loaded, basically. Yeah, that, that's part of the problem. You want them to want to do a backhaul, you know, and it makes economic sense. Why send them back empty? Well, they obviously see, economically speaking, they're going to make more money bringing it back to, say, China or Indonesia than sending it back because they don't have enough goods to warrant filling that, you know. I think for a while they were saying only one-seventh or one-eighth of vessels are actually getting loaded for a backhaul. Jeez. And for the, you know, almond growers who might listen to this, obviously the number one impact on them is going to be price. And we've talked about that where it's, you know, an issue of not being able to get it to the buyer that's willing to pay for it. And so the price back to them gets affected. Are there other kind of other second or third order issues that kind of ripple from this? And I don't know if if quality is impacted at all or anything like that. that Well, absolutely. Quality can. As soon as it hits a transshipment port and if it gets stuck in there, like earlier in the fall, We had product from last year get stuck in, you know, Hong Kong or some of these other transshipment ports, and it would be there for two months, three months. Well, it's not being in safekeeping, right? It's not going through the proper fumigation. So, yeah, as soon as you lose control of the product, you're at risk. Well, if I ask you to get your crystal ball out just one more time, you know, when everything does normalize, whenever that is or however that is, what lasting impacts do you think this challenge of these past couple of years will have on sort of the, the global almond supply chain? Ooh, that's a, that's a complex one. I think it's made us be a lot more in tuned to, you know, who our logistics partners are. By that, I mean the steamship lines, the freight forwarders. We've learned a lot about the differences in each one of those companies, right? A little bit, working a lot closer to them and trying to get things solved. So, If anything, if things get smoothed out, really, we should be a more equipped industry. Our shipping managers have never had to deal with so much than they have over the last two years, right? Our freight forwarders, the people we work with, our partners in Oakland and Almeida and down south in Long Beach, they've seen things they've never experienced. Well, now they have. So hopefully we can get ourselves out of pickles a little more effectively the next go around, right? We know what strings to pull in Washington and Sacramento because we've tried all avenues, right? Until you finally get a voice like, all right, I'm going back to you next time, right? So you hope we do have some residual value from this, even though it's been absolutely painful as hell. 
Definitely. Darren, this has been great. Thank you for sharing all this. It's neat to talk to somebody who's living it every day. I mean, probably not neat for you to be living it every day, but it's definitely insightful. Anything we didn't touch on that would be you know relevant to a grower audience about just the overall logistical transportation issues you're having to deal with? I don't think so. I think we hit on the main the main talking points. Just know that the almond industry is a resourceful bunch and you know we're working our hardest throughout the supply chain to get this product to market. We're trying to be creative. We're doing different things that we've never done before. And it's all, you know, trying to market this crop and try to get the money back to the grower. That's where it belongs. Well, great note to end on right there. Thank you very much to Darren Rigg for taking the time to talk about some of these challenges in the quite literal almond journey to exporting almonds around the world. Understanding how we move past these issues is an important topic for everyone in the industry and the reason the Almond Board recently conducted a handler survey. The results of that survey are the focus of today's ABC update. Well, as most of you know, around 70% of all California almonds are exported. And as you just heard from Darren, there are a lot of factors causing these massive backlogs and logistical problems working against the handlers who are trying to get those almonds shipped. Almond Board of California Senior Analyst for Government Relations Brock Densel said in order to understand the economic impacts of these issues at the handler level, they conducted a handler survey. The key takeaways from the survey can be summed up into three major categories, and those are shipping costs, administrative costs, and storage costs. The most obvious of which is that shipping costs, the container fees associated with, with shipping, rose about 50% year over year. My Intuition is that that's a number that will continue to rise into the future as well. Additionally, we found that uh, the cost of just getting the product from a warehouse to the port went up about 61%. Uh, and that's due to a number of factors. But again, that's another one that I, I would think that if we were to go out with this survey right now would probably be even higher due to one of those factors and that being uh, the increased cost of, of fuel. When we look at what are the other maybe not as obvious factors that we're seeing, the biggest one to me is administrative costs and administrative time. So our respondents noted that the costs associated with just their administrative work increased 44% per container, and that sort of equaled out to an increase of nine extra staff hours per consignment. So that means that really it's taking a full day's worth of extra work at the administrative level just to get a shipment completed for every ship. That is a lot of additional staff time, a lot of additional staff hours, and a lot of uh, uh, additional administrative costs that are kind of baked into that. Along those same lines of things that, that we might not typically think about when it comes to this is additional measures on products quality and safety. And we had, I believe it was 93% of our respondents indicated that due to these delays, they were forced to take additional preventative measures, such as increased inventory controls and fumigation. Additionally, the detention and demurrage fees, we found that the range of an increase that our handlers were seeing in these, these fees being applied by the carriers that increase was anywhere from 15% all the way up to 200% in our responses that we received back. So, you know, that can make a, a really big difference 
when we're looking at that year over year number. Another area making a really big difference is storage and warehousing. Denzel said all of this is putting a big squeeze on handlers and in turn growers. While we don't have some some great numbers on how much total space handlers would have needed to get as a result of this, we do know that you know we had record carry in another large crop, and now this backed up supply has really caused this sort of unanticipated lack of warehouse space. And you know a lot of the handlers that we spoke to uh, have either had to rent additional space or or build new space. And that renting is, especially in this environment, incredibly expensive. And as is, of course, uh, acquiring new space. We actually talked to a a lot of handlers that their planning cycle worked out well, that they had just built and and just had new warehousing space that came online. So able to handle some of these backlogs just a little bit better. But it is really one of the the major concerns that we heard from handlers and really something that that we're going to be closely keeping our eye on as we move forward. If we're unable to speed up the the rate at which some of the product is is getting out of the country, we could see some more significant warehousing shortages later this year. So, you know, I think the the biggest impact of all of this is being felt probably most acutely right now. These supply chain disruptions in general, and Specifically, in this instance, the inability to export uh, as much product as is probably needing is causing some cash flow issues across the industry from what we understand. And obviously, when that cash flow isn't getting to the handler, they're having a more difficult time with allowing that cash to flow back down to the grower level as well. And especially this time of year, that's really important especially when combined with the other supply chain disruptions and an increase in input costs as well. Thank you to Brock Denzel for taking the time to share these results on the handler survey regarding the economic impact of these transportation challenges. And if you're listening and would like more information on this, there's a link in the show notes for an article on almonds.com, as well as a video from a recent Training Tuesday presentation on this very topic. We believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Darren Rigg, may have sparked a connection or maybe an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to someone else in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together.